We will be in Exodus 28 for this evening. And let me just say this as uh, someone who has just come in among your number, it is a great privilege always to preach the Word of God, but it is a unique and special and blessed gift to do so for a people that I am accounted among. So, brethren, thank you so much for uh, allowing me this gift for myself, and hopefully it will be beneficial to your souls. Uh, Our passage tonight is in the very center of God's description of the tabernacle, as we come to the very end of Exodus, as it were. In the greater context, Moses is dealing with how the tabernacle and the sacrificial system would enable Israel to commune with God. But in our text, we see the the finer details, the the little jots and tittles of of what the spirit-filled artisans uh, were to craft concerning the priest's garments. We get both the description of these priestly garments, and we see how the priest would function within this greater tabernacle, this sacrificial system. And so with that, let's read our text, and then we'll pray for the Lord's blessing upon it. So with us all, uh, let's read uh, Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make the holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine, uh, fine linen, And they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, artistically worked. It shall shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be be of the same workmanship, made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stone, in order of their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engraving of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in the settings of gold, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their name before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold, and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. You shall make the breastplate of judgment, artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. You shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square, A span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be of sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. 
and the stone shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of the signet, each one with its own name, and they shall be according to the twelve tribes. You shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold, and you shall take two rings of gold for the breastplate, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two braided chains of the gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate, and the other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings, and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. You shall make two rings of gold, and put them on the two ends of the breastplate, on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod. The other two rings of gold you shall make, and put them on the two shoulder straps, underneath the ephod toward its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod, using a blue cord so that it may be above the intricately woven band of the ephod, and so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. When he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually, and you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall be a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, upon the hem of the robe all around. And it shall be woven upon, it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on blue cord, that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things with the children of Israel, hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall skillfully weave the tunics of fine linen thread, and you shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of woven work. For Aaron's sons you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them, for glory and beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with them. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness, that they shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall, not be on, they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur the iniquity and, and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, even this text, stands forever. Let us pray. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. And as we come to these texts, as we have just sang, help us to behold a priest who is worthy. 
a Savior who is sufficient and a friend of sinners who comes to us to save us and draw us nigh unto the Father. O oh, Father, O oh, Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I'm a maintenance man by trade now. And just like a doctor with a white coat or a police officer with a vest and gun, I too have a uniform. I wear a dirty jacket, hat with the company logo, and I carry a bunch of jangly tools in my big, oversized pockets. But most importantly, I have keys that can open any door on the property. I have the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. And when my tenants see me, they know exactly who I am. They know exactly who I am. When they need help, they know who to look for. They need that inside man. They need that inside company man. And when they are locked outside of their homes, they are delighted to see me. Of all people, they are so excited to see me. Even with all my griminess and my disgusting, dirty jacket, they are delighted to see me. Because... I have the power and authority to get them in. Just by one look at me, they know that I can get them back home. In the greater context of our passage, the tabernacle was the sacred home where God resided among Israel. But Israel still needed a high priest adorned in the tabernacle uniform, one adorned in beauty and for glory. To bring them before God's house. To get them in. And like Israel, we all here are outsiders needing an inside man to draw us near to God. And so this is what I want us to see from this text, brothers and sisters. You can draw near to God because we have such a high priest in Jesus Christ. You can draw near to God because we have such a high priest in Jesus Christ. In our passage, there are five items of the high priest uniform that shows us what our Christ does for us. We will follow this over five uh, points or so. And I'm a good Baptist pastor so, or Baptist preacher, so they alliterate. He represents, he rules, he restores, he reconciles, and he recruits. Now as we go forward, those will repeat. Don't worry for those who are taking notes. So for our first point, we can draw near to God because we have a priest who represents. Verses 6 to 14 detail the high priest ephod. Starting with this outermost garment, the ephod was this full torso apron. And being, being the outermost garment, it would have been the most noticeable piece of clothing. If you saw someone with the ephod, you immediately think of them assuming a priestly role. Such as David dancing before the ark, he wore an ephod. Or Samuel at Shiloh. Verses 6 to 8 carry on and describe this ephod for us. It has these two shoulder straps so that this full body apron was tight fitting. It was made out of the same materials actually used in the curtain walls of the tabernacle. It was made of blue and gold, purple and scarlet yarn and fine twine linen. So there was no mistaking that the priest who wore this ephod belonged to God's house. He was the servant of God's house. 
But verses 9 to 14 highlights another party that the high priest would serve the covenant people. The ephod would have two onyx stones engraved with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And these stones would be set in gold on the ephod's shoulder straps as decorative shoulder pieces. And notice how verse 12 describes them. Look there with me. These two stones are memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. The language of bearing their names describes Aaron's role as Israel's representative. When Aaron comes before the Lord, bearing Israel's name, it is a reminder of the covenant between Yahweh and his people. So through the high priest, so though the high priest serves in God's house, he serves God's people first and foremost as their representative. Without a representative in God's house to bear their name, Israel had no hope in themselves to draw near. They had none. Like all mankind, Israel was marred by sin. They were strangers approaching God's dwelling place, doomed to be cast out. But in God's grace, he supplies a covenant representative to bear his people's name before him. They had an inside man who acted as a surety that God will remember his people and his covenant promises. They could draw near because their inside man was pleading their case. And how much more is this true for those of us in Christ Jesus? As our representative, the Son of God bore our names in his sufferings and death and in his resurrection, session, and ascension. By believing in this gospel, you believe that your name was placed upon Christ's shoulders at the cross. We believe a gospel wherein he carried your name into the grave and out of it. And your Christ now bears your name before your heavenly Father forever. And so we have this precious promise in Christ. We all know it. If anyone sins, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Brothers and sisters, we must go through Christ, our advocate and representative, to commune with God. But for some, the idea that we need a representative at all is offensive. It offends their sense of self-worth. It offends their idea that God should be immediately approachable. Who needs this middleman? I want a God that I can immediately go to. But such thinking, such thoughts fail to grasp the grace in what God has done in Christ. Remember, the priest is pictured as an inside man. He already belonged to God's house, yet God gives him to the people. Connect this imagery to Christ. In Christ, the very Son of God comes to advocate on your behalf. The inapproachable God himself comes to you in Christ, bearing your name, bringing you into the fullness of divine life. Christ is no middleman to God. He is our direct access. The Father gives us Christ as our advocate to show us that our sins will not nullify God's desire to commune with us. So it does not matter 
how worthless you may feel, brothers and sisters. God's desire to commune with you is not based upon your sense of guilt or shame. It is based upon Christ's worth as our holy representative and God's desire to commune with you. So Christ's advocacy is for our benefit, not God's. The Father is not some cruel father-in-law figure. He doesn't look at you with a skeptical look over the dinner table. He doesn't just accept you because his son has his arm around you. The father doesn't have his arms folded, questioning whether you are good enough for his son. No! Such a view distorts our heavenly father as a tyrant, waiting to pounce. But he only relents because Jesus has his arms around us, because Jesus stands in the way. Dear saint, let me ask you, is there confusion in the triune God regarding your soul? No! Is there confusion over the singular will of God over you and your eternal status? Oh, may it never be. Our gospel is too beautiful for that. Our gospel is a father sending his son to redeem his bride, not a father chiding his son for the bride he has taken. Our gospel is that the Father sent his only begotten Son to take on our humanity, to serve us unto death and rise again. And the Father sent the Son for this very reason, that we sinners may draw near to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, let your souls be encouraged. Let your souls be encouraged. If Christ represents you, if he advocates for you, you can draw near to God. You can draw near to God without the fear of sin stain and with, most beautifully of all, the full assurance of the triune God's love for you. Draw near to God because the Father sent Christ for that very reason. So then, the ephod illustrates the priestly work of representation. And building upon this ephod is the next garment, the breastplate, which brings us to our second point. We can draw near to God because we have a priest who rules. In verses 15 to 30, the breastplate with the urim and the thummim illustrates the priest's rule over Israel with God's will. The term breastplate is a bit misleading to our ears. It sounds like a piece of armor, right? But the breastplate was a piece of cloth made from the same material as the ephod. It was basically a folded napkin or a hand towel that made a square pouch that laid on top of the priest's chest. It was bedazzled on one side with 12 precious stones, each representing one of the tribes of Israel. And the breastplate was so tightly sewn and fashioned to the ephod by golden rings and cords and blue cords. And so the breastplate was tightly connected to the ephod, both literally and figuratively. The 12 stones of the breastplate functioned similarly as the ephod shoulder pieces. In verse 29, the breastplate communicated how the priest would bear the names of Israel as a covenant representative yet again. But notice how the breastplate of judgment stands out, how it's unique. Inside the pouch were the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly what these were. Our best guess likely is that they were two stones acting possibly like dice or lots. 
We see that they are used to discern the will of God and how to lead Israel. For example, in 1 Samuel 14, Saul seeks to know who was guilty in his party through the priests Urim and Thummim. He was asking a specific question, if it's this option, show Urim. If it's that option, show Thummim. Also, when David was worried about a possible threat was true, he told Abiathar, the priest, to get his ephod with the Urim and Thummim. And so when the kings or the people needed to discern God's will or judgment of their particular circumstances, they came to the priest. As verse 30 states, Aaron would literally bear the judgment of Israel on his heart, his chest, before the Lord regularly. He wore the means by which Israel and her kings could know God's will in their times of trouble. So with the breastplate of judgment, the priest became synonymous with God's will. By the priest, kings would rule the people in true judgment and wisdom. I think the best example of this is actually found with King Solomon. In his narratives, Solomon takes on a priestly role in many respects. In 1 Kings 3, we have a very memorable story. Solomon must decide between two women uh, between two women on who was a true mother, who was the true mother of a child. And after he sorts out the problem between these two women, we read this. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to execute judgment, just as the priests would do with the Urim and the Thummim. Priestly figures were the very picture of God's will for his people. So through the priest, Israel would be ruled well. Again, brothers and sisters, we have such a high priest in Jesus. And this has immense importance for your walk. Christ rules us perfectly, far better than we can discern God's will. If you're anything like me, Trying to discern God's will for your life is often an exercise in futility. Should I move here? Should I move there? Should I pursue that job? Should I pursue that relationship? Maybe you're trying to get some advice on a gray area in your life. This brother here says this is best, but that brother disagrees. Yammer in between one another, and it just gets very confusing after that. But there seems to be no perfect answer that comes with a heavenly glow around it. And you're left asking, what is best for me? What's best for me and my family? What does God want from me? What does God want me to do? Of course, willful ignorance and foolish thinking are not excusable in our decision-making. We must seek to live according to God's revealed will. But in decision where scripture does not speak, we can often slip into the mentality that we are letting down the Lord if we possibly make a bad call. In hindsight, our judgment was bad. And we can punish ourselves because we're not omniscient. I must admit... Discerning God's will through the Urim and the Thummim sounds better than trying to figure it out for ourselves. It does. Wouldn't it be nice to play a quick game of Yahtzee to know exactly what God wanted from you? To do exactly? 
But the Urim and the Thummim were not some sanctified Ouija board. It was given so that Israel would learn dependence upon the Lord's revealed way, not their own understanding. And for this same reason, God has sent us Christ Jesus. God has spoken to us finally and completely in his Son. As kings depended upon their priests, we must depend upon Christ to give us wisdom and lead us in right judgment by his word and spirit. And it's by this design that we learn dependence upon Christ's perfect rule. Brothers and sisters, especially you young folk, I pity you so much because I was just there. I'm still there according to some of you. In your Christian walk, you will need to make crucial decisions. You will have some tough calls to make. But in your limited knowledge or discernment, you will make a mistake. You will make a bad call or a wrong turn. But the good news is, is that Jesus still rules well, whether you are right or wrong. He rules over your life, whether in the good decision or bad. And he can even lead you perfectly through that bad call or that unforeseen event. So for you anxious souls, and that's all of us here, let that sink into your hearts. Christ's perfect rule gives you the freedom not to be perfect in every decision. Let that be a burden off of your soul. Sometimes we make mistakes And not because we are simply repressing the truth. No. Sometimes we make mistakes because even the best of men are men at best. When you find that you have erred in your decisions, learn to breathe easy. Take time to pray as our brother exhorted us. Seek the Lord for further discernment and wisdom. But don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. It is by design that in your failures that you learn to lean more on Christ. So brothers and sisters, lean into your finitude. Lean into your finitude. Where you fail, simply pick yourself up again. And we can do this so easily because we have a Christ who rules us perfectly, who will lead us perfectly. Remember, only the high priest was given the breastplate. It was not given to all Israel. They had to learn dependence upon their high priests. And brothers and sisters, we must do the same. So moving on. The ephod with the breastpiece was the outermost layer of the priest's uniform. But we now come to the third, but probably the most important element of the high priest's uniform, the high priestly robe. So for our third point, draw near because we have a priest who restores In verses 31 to 35, the priestly robe with its garden imagery and deep blue color, it depicts the restoration of what our father Adam lost. For this first point, I want us to see how the priest restored two realities that Adam lost. First, Adam lost Eden. We know this story. As many note, the tabernacle's design uses Edenic images of trees and cherubim and Precious stones and materials evoke illusions to Genesis 2. The Garden of Eden was a temple garden of sorts. And this is later reflected in the tabernacle's design. 
The high priestly robe shared this imagery with decorative pomegranates embroidered around the hem. This robe depicted a restored Adam figure back in the garden. It's a very beautiful and striking scene. But second, Adam lost heaven, right? By obedience to God, Adam would have brought heaven on earth. But he failed. So notice the allusion to heaven in the color of the robe. It was not scarlet and gold, but it was all blue, except around the hem. But all of it was all blue. Remember, recall this back from your time in Exodus. When God appeared to Moses, Moses saw a heavenly temple of of sorts, which the tabernacle is patterned after. He saw the heavenly blueprints open up, so to speak, Exodus 25. And remember that scene in Exodus 24. God revealed himself to Moses and the 70 elders. And, And do you remember what they saw? They saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heavens of clearness. The idea is that Moses, as he was on top of the mountain with the 70 elders, is that they literally saw the literal sapphire dome of heaven with its deep blue color. Moses was, may have seen this heavenly temple and the heavenly host through this blue clear dome. And so the deep blue of the high priestly robe suggests that the priest belonged to God's heavenly domain. The priest belonged to the other side of heaven, the other side of the dome. He belonged to heaven, the very place that Adam had failed to enter. So there's both an Edenic and heavenly imagery surrounding the high priest. But also catch this little detail. There were bells all around the hem of the robe. Verse 35 tells us that when the high priest ministers, the bells would sound. Sound may be heard when he enters the holy place before Yahweh and when he comes out, so that he may not die. Like any faithful servant, the priest would make himself known before the king in his chamber, in his throne room. And so this imagery has a lot of moving parts. So let me just suggest that Moses, what Moses is getting at. In this Edenic imagery, the priest reflected Adam in the garden. He stands as a faithful steward of God's holy domain. But the heavenly imagery reflected what Adam failed to achieve. By Adam's perfect obedience in the garden, he could have earned the everlasting Sabbath rest and received his heavenly inheritance. Through his servants to Yahweh, Adam could have brought heaven on earth. So the priestly robe reflects what Adam could have been all that he could have been. Unlike Adam in his sin, the priest does not hide from the presence of God. Rather, the robe with its bells sounding forth his presence along the hymn, it reflects an Adam figure serving faithfully in his uncorrupted, heavenly, and perfected status. Brothers and sisters, imagine being an ancient Israelite looking at that, looking at this priest. In that priest, he could have a restored hope of what was once a lost dream with Adam. That ancient Israelite, when he saw that high priest, he saw that is someone that I've never seen before, but I know that I need to belong to. 
They saw a restored image. Brothers and sisters, we have a high priest that does more than merely reflect what Adam could have been. We have a high priest that has truly restored what Adam has lost. As the author of Hebrews states, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a servant in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, the heavenly temple. Christ Jesus is the second Adam who has secured our rest and inheritance through his perfect obedience. In Christ, we are assured of a righteous and accepted standing before God, free from the guilt and shame of Adam's failure. And in Christ, we have the hope of the resurrections to the new heavens and the new earth, free from Adam's corruption and his curse. All of these blessings, brothers and sisters, come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have the new, restored humanity that God had intended for all of us, promised to us in the person of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let me just take this moment to say, behold your Christ. Behold your Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything that we have failed to be and everything that we long for. We happily stake our eternal souls on who Jesus claimed to be and what he has promised. So children, young men, young ladies here, I'm going to be bold with you. I miss preaching to my young people back at our home church. And so you're going to get the blunt of this. I apologize. But it's so important for anyone here who does not know of our Lord savingly. There may be some here today who doubt our Christ. Dear friend, you may doubt that he is all that important. You may doubt his ability to deliver on what he promises. You may not simply believe the hype. What does it matter? You may appreciate our Christianity, your parents' Christianity, for helping people get by in their life. But you say, that is good for you, but it's not really for me. But this Christ who claims much and promises much is exactly what your soul needs. If you do not take hold of this Christ, it is because you are placing your hope in all sorts of empty and vain promises. You may think that you can find peace and happiness through meeting your immediate needs. Oh, the great lie of our day. That this life is all that there is. As long as I meet my needs and have money in the bank, how? I'm good. You may be placed, you may hope, uh, your hope may be placed upon a simple life, free from strife. You may dream of an honorable career, a happy family, or a, a simple legacy to be remembered by, right? Oh, the American dream, is it not? These are all fine things to desire. But if that is all that you claim that you need, you will eventually discover that you have been duped by the transience of this life. Dear soul, you place your hope in things that will fade away like grass. Your life is a vapor. If you build your life and joy upon the transient things of this earth, 
You forfeit your immortal soul to the things that will bring you no joy and no peace in the life to come where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Adam believed this lie of Satan, the very lie that tempts you now. He took the fruit that promised a temporary delight, but by believing that lie, he doomed his eternal soul. As was the man of dust, so goes those who are of the dust. Dear soul, do not believe the false promises of this life. They promise an empty hope. But the promise and hope of Christ is eternal and unfading. So think, seek and think upon the things above where Christ is. Through a living faith in Christ, you, yes, you can draw near to God. Eternal rest and peace are found in him. Though we deserve to fade away with this world and its empty promises, Christ provides the hope and glory of heaven. Though we have borne the image of the man of dust, yet through faith in Christ, you, all of us here, can have the hope that we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Christ is our only true hope. So we may all, so may we all take hold of him by faith. Though this world glitters like gold, it promises us nothing. But Christ promises full restoration, the full restoration of all of what it means to be human. And oh, dear soul, if you doubt, he does not only promise, but he has delivered on those promises. Oh, dear soul, Come to him. Come to him now. Turn from your sins and trust in a Savior who claims much but also delivers much. So then moving on, the robe was the largest main garment that would have brought the entire uniform together. But the next item, the golden plate, was the smallest but loudest piece in the wardrobe. This brings us to our fourth point. Draw near to God because we have a priest who reconciles. In verses 36 to 38, the golden plate speaks directly to the priest's status and work. In verse 36, Moses is given a design of a small golden plate or a placard. It would have been a similar size to what you had seen on a modern trophy. Elsewhere, this place is called a holy crown. And as verse 37 states, the golden plate would be joined to the top of the turban, a more ornate headpiece that was given uh, to the high priest than to the average. Engraved on this placard are the words holiness or holy to the Lord, giving the priest a holy status. This shows us that the high priest was to be set apart from the rest of Israel for his unique work. And the following verse in verse 38, we see exactly what this work would be. Aaron shall lift up the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel have set apart according to all their holy gifts. And the golden plate shall be on his forehead continually to find favor for them before the Lord. And so this work had three aspects. First, he represented the people again, and he would present Israel's holy gifts to the Lord, a term referring to the sacrifices of the people. Second, the high priest was responsible for Israel's sins. He was to lift up the iniquity of Israel's offerings, an idiom meaning to bear the punishment of. And third, the end goal of this work was reconciliation. Israel's sins were an offense before the Lord. They were unable to approach him in their sins. 
But through the priestly work of bearing guilt and atoning through sacrifice, Israel was accepted by Yahweh. Israel could draw near to God because their priest's golden plate shouted that he could reconcile them. So the high priest represents the people before the Lord. He is responsible for their sins and through his work reconciles them to God, securing his favor. That is a lot to place on the shoulders of a mere man. Amen? I'm not sure what Aaron would have thought, but I like to imagine when Aaron first heard this, he trembled a bit. How could he, a sinner, bear and atone the sins of a whole host of people? This is one of the great problems that we have seen of the earthly priesthood. But this is exactly why God gives us a better hope by which we can draw near. In Hebrews 7, God makes an oath that Jesus would be made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jake, thank you for that, brother. The earthly priesthood was subject to death, but Christ's priesthood would be unending because he continues forever. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest like Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no priest like the high priest, like Aaron, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. As Pastor Jim has repeated to us again and again, Jesus is a guarantor of a better covenant based upon better promises. Unlike the earthly priests, there is no doubt that Jesus can actually do what he promises he will do. Jesus can deliver on his promises. Brothers and sisters, I don't care how bold your faith is. At some point in your walk, you will be tempted to ask whether Jesus is enough to get you to God. To place your acceptance before God solely upon another is completely unnatural to us. We want a further guarantee that Jesus can do what he says that he can do. Or to put it another way, we want to secure Jesus' promises by our own worthiness. And how often does this unbelief drive us to to second-guess our Lord? Is he actually enough? Is he worthy enough? Can he alone actually do it? Now you may puff your chest and say, of course, preacher, didn't you just say that Jesus is our only hope? Well, I'm so glad that you're listening. And I'm so glad that you're so confident, O soul. But let me ask you, what was your immediate response, your first response, when you had last sinned grievously? When you last really blew it. In our folly, we don't like to think that our minor sins are truly offensive against our Lord. So let's go with the bigger sins that we all know that we do. So think with me. When was the last time uh, when you last lost your temper? Maybe with your spouse or your children. You said some words that you regret. Maybe in your hot pride, in your anger, in your stubbornness, maybe you took a step too far. What thoughts filled your mind when you thought of that insufferable neighbor or co-worker? How did you respond when the guilt of what you said or thought came over you? 
But what did you do after you may have lingered a bit too long over an inappropriate image on the internet, if not worse? What did you do when the sense of shame and filth came pouring over you? Dear Saint, how quick are you to fly to Jesus to find forgiveness? Let's be honest. Let's be brutally honest. When you realize your sin, you often try to clean yourself up first before you go back to Jesus, right? You're too ashamed and burdened to take it immediately to your high priest. Now, let me cover this up. Uh, let me figure this out. Um, just, just give me time to clean myself up, okay, Jesus? Even though you know that he is your only hope, you still fear condemnation. You still have that guilt, that embarrassment, that shame. Rather than confess it plainly to Christ, you try to bury and forget it, often with the vain promises to do better. Dear saint, you cannot bury the stench of your sin under a mountain of good works. No matter what, that sin must be dealt with. And dear saint, you will drive yourself mad trying to deal with it yourself. That is why Christ has come to us as a high priest of the good things to come, not of the old ways of dealing with it on our own. By his own blood, Christ has secured our eternal redemption and reconciliation. It is unfading, incorruptible, unfading. Your justification cannot erode away by the power of your sins. Why? Because Christ offered himself without blemish to God. God does not accept you on the basis of your merit, but you are accepted upon the eternal worth of the Son's blood. So he, and he alone, can purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Dear saints, dear saints, stop inserting yourself where Jesus stands for you already. You need a reconciliation that only another can provide. So take hold of Christ alone. Stop hiding and stop flogging yourself for your sins. That will not atone. Rather, repent and bring your sins to the one who is able to make you clean and give you true peace with God. Oh, dear saint, dear saint, as you look to the sufficiency of our Christ, may your soul sing as we said, sang earlier, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So then the golden plate shouted what the priest came to do for his people. But moving to the remaining items, we see the final priestly garments that would be shared among all the priests. And this brings us to our final point, and we'll close here. Draw near to God because we have a priest who recruits. In verses 39 to 43, the other priests are given holy clothing that is shared with the high priest. In verse 39, there are three remaining items that the high priest would wear as undergarments. He's given a tunic uh, that was worn under his robe and ephod. And a sash would be acted as a girdle under his robe. There's also a turban with the golden plate uh, that would be placed upon it. And these garments in verse 39 were for the high priest alone. But in verse 40 we see that the other priests would have tunics and sashes made for them. They would also have caps similar to the high priest's turban. And so though the regular priest's clothing was less ornate, notice how the Lord describes them. Just as the high priest, they were for beauty and for glory. In verse 41, 
the regular police would be anointed or ordained in their tunics, sashes, and caps. This clothing would set them apart from Israel as holy servants. And in the following verses uh, are the final pieces of the uniform. There were linens to cover the loins of the priest. They were given this particular item so that they would not accidentally expose themselves before the Lord and incur guilt. Exposing bare flesh had already been prohibited. And by providing this garment, the Lord was ensuring that the priest would remain holy and accepted before him. Again, the Lord was doing that. By By virtue of their natural union, Aaron's sons shared in the same privileges as Aaron. Though they were not high priests themselves, they were still given an extraordinary honor and status to serve before the Lord continually. And this same relationship exists between Christ and his church. Peter says this about us. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As those spiritually united to Christ... We share in all his benefits. All that Christ is, we become. His holy and righteous status becomes ours. Like Adam's, we were to be priests, but sin took that away. But Christ restores us as God's priests yet again, and he recruits us for his service. Brothers and sisters, think about how Paul describes us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you want, you can turn there. We'll end here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. Everything that we have seen Christ do for us in Exodus 28, we see Paul called the Corinthians to. We see that Christ is our representative, but Paul calls him an ambassador for Christ. And as ambassadors, we have the same honor of showing the world who Christ is as our representative before God. We have seen that Christ rules us by his word. We are to depend on his word. But Paul says that God makes his appeal through us through the message of our or word of reconciliation. So we are simply to depend on the gospel message to do its work. And we leave the results to our Lord. And we have a liberating and honoring work. We have the joyous work of telling others of Jesus that we can rest easy knowing that God will bless that work as he sees fit. We have seen that Christ restores perfectly what Adam failed was supposed to be. But what does Paul say of us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17? We all know it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, the newness of life that Christ provides us gives us a greater hope than anything that this fading world has to offer. So we can serve the Lord by giving starving sinners the hope of new life found in Jesus. You get the joy of telling others about the one who's making all things new. And we have seen that Christ reconciles us to God. God has given us the message of reconciliation. He does not count our sins against us. And so we can be accepted and reconciled to our God. For those under the weight and burden of sin, who still feel the sting of sin, We are recruited to tell them about our Christ. We can show them the Christ who says, Come to me, all who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, that Christ is who we get to share to this world. What an honor. Brothers and sisters, this work becomes our joy because these promises are true of our own souls. We have been restored in garbs, garbed in Christ's garments of righteousness. We stand before our God holy and accepted because Christ is worthy. In Jesus, we have a priest to clothe us, to wrap his arms around us, and lead us into the Heavenly Father's home. Indeed, we have such a high priest in Jesus Christ. Dear soul, you know who to look for to get you back home. So draw near and come now. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has sovereignly took the initiative to come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that you sent forth your Son, that he might atone for our sins, taking our names upon him, dying and rising again for the justification, the the basis of our justification, that we might ever live for him. Oh, Father, for those who do not know of this Christ, who do not know that there is a Savior who has come to make all things new. Help them to turn, cause them to turn from the vain promises of this world, but help them to take hold of Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Help them all, O Father, that they might savor and delight not in vain promises of this world, but in the perfect promises of Christ that He has boldly declared to us and that He has perfectly delivered on. Oh, Father, may we all be captivated and behold this Christ. We ask this, Father, in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen.